Okay, everyone, we're the OK Petunias. I'm TJ. And I'm Aaron. And I hope you join us today while we talk about the Golden Girls. So before we jump into the first episode where we're going to talk about the pilot, mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about ourselves. Not very long, despite my temptation to talk about myself all the time. I am TJ. I have a PhD in English, particularly in film and TV studies. I've been a lifelong fan of the Golden Girls, literally a lifelong fan, having been born in 84. And I'm very excited to be talking about it in more depth and with a more critical but also fan-based analysis approach. Mm -hmm. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Aaron? Okay, so um, I also have a PhD. Mine's in communication. Um, I'm a professor of media production. And I actually use the Golden Girls a lot in a lot of my classes, Uh, not just to sort of talk about the show and its sort of, you know, thematic elements, but also how it was made. but that said, I'm also not quite a lifelong fan. I, w- I was already around <laughs> when the show went on the air, but I've been watching it since its very first season on the air originally, and I've been a fan ever since then. Right, so we're going to go ahead and just start right at the beginning. We're going to jump right into it with the pilot. So what is this episode about exactly? Sadly enough... It's not about a pilot. <laughs> it's just the first episode of the show. Much to Blanche's chagrin. Exactly. Blanche would love a pilot. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, basically, this is the episode that, of course, introduces the show and the characters to the world. Uh, but unlike a lot of current day pilot shows, which are what we call like premise pilots, that's sort of where the first episode sort of gives you the background or the backstory for the series that will come. This is more of a traditional pilot where it's it reads more like a just a regular episode of the show it could be the first episode it could be the 10th episode it doesn't really matter and so it has to introduce the characters within the context of an actual normal plot and so the basic plot for this one is that Blanche is has been seeing a guy and he's proposed marriage and Blanche has to decide whether or not she's gonna you know, go off and marry him or stay with the life that she's got with the girls marry Harry, marry Harry Little <laughs> and of course this precipitates a crisis as Dorothy and Rose, her roommates, have to deal with the fact that, you know, they may be losing their house. Mm -hmm. Dorothy establishes herself as the sort of acerbic, sarcastic one. Rose is the more, not quite of the dingbat that she'll become, but there's still a lot of naivete Mm -hmm. there. And then, of course, Sophia shows up and and bluntly states, the home burned down. Yes. And she, that, of course, is Dorothy's mother, who subsequently becomes the very foul-mouthed and very bluntly spoken Mm -hmm. member of the house exactly and again all of that should feel familiar to fans of the show because again so many episodes of the series reflect this kind of dynamic there's something that might jeopardize the relationship between the four girls uh and of course and they figure out some way to avoid that disruption that plot point happens in so many different ways in a lot of different contexts. The one thing that's different about this pilot episode is that, of course, Sophia does not live with the girls at the beginning of the episode. In fact, the fourth house member <laughs> at the beginning of this episode is Coco, uh, the as they describe him, the gay cook who works for the girls, uh, who's only seen in this episode. Right, and only and not even that many episode or sorry scenes in the episode. Like exactly. he's very sort of ancillary to the action and i think that that's part of the function of the reshoots that restructure the whole episode mm-hmm. and also just the way the narr- it's clear even from the narrative that he wasn't as firmly like implicated in their lives as you know 
Sophia would later become. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the sort of the reshoots there because uh, this this show is old. <laughs> and so it was made like a lot of shows of its era where the pilot episode that's originally filmed wasn't created to be seen by the public. It was just to sell the show to a network. And so very often shows would retool their pilot episodes so that they could then use it as an episode in the first season of the show. Mm -hmm. That was pretty common practice for, especially for sitcoms uh, back in the day. Uh, But the reason for that is that the pilot episode was usually shot lower budget so because they're just trying to sell the premise of the show right it's not really meant for public consumption but what they'll often do is retool the episode make a few changes and but because they already have a script they can save on some of their production uh for the season by having one that's a script that's already written essentially and that saves a bit of money in the production of season one for a lot of shows so a lot of shows did that Mm mm-hmm It just so happens that the retools here changed the fundamental nature of the show by getting rid of someone who was supposed to be a main character and replacing him by somebody else. Right. And of course, we'll deal with Charles Levin a little bit more at the end of the show. Uh, But as you say, it is worth pointing out that that's part of why this pilot, which while it works very well to establish who these characters are, what their dynamic is with each other, what kinds of comedic like archetypes they're going to be fitting into. There are some moments when it feels a little strange just because those of us who've watched the show repeatedly just kind of are like, what's Coco doing there? Exactly. He kind of throws the balance off just slightly. Although, in Coco's defense, he is very funny. Yes. Like, his lines are delivered with exactly the level of gay panache that one would expect. Mm -hmm. Like, what he says about Rose, he's like... Why tell her? Because like, <laughs> Rose keeps referring to Charlie as if he's still alive. Mm-hmm. And who is Charlie? And Charlie, of course, is Rose's dead husband, who has been dead at some, for quite some time before this episode begins. Uh, and so, you know, she's referring to him in the present tense, and Dorothy's like, Rose, he's dead. <laughs> Which, of course, is not the first time that Rose has to be reminded that people are dead. But yeah, we'll, exactly. we'll get to the RV being passed by the film movie Winnebago <laughs> down the line. So I think that, as we've said, one of the things this episode does very well is to both function as its own narrative. Like, there's a narrative here that is very Mm self-contained in an episodic fashion that we expect from traditional sitcom structure. Mm -hmm. That there's a crisis that's precipitated by Blanche being married to Harry. And then, of course, it turns out Harry's not only a scuzzball, as Sophia Blunt (laughs) states, um, he is also... A bigamist. Yes. And, of course, Blanche's w- dreams for wedded matrimony come crashing down around her. Mm-hmm. And she, as she says, you know, I'd, I'd be too embarrassed to see look anyone in the face again. And she's like, I wish I could die and then be married with Mr. Pincus. <laughs> and that then she would never have to look anyone in the face again, except, as Rose points out, Mr. Pincus. But <laughs> another brilliant line. But I also think it's a very funny episode. Like, I think that, for me at least... The first season is a little bit uneven in terms of how well I think the comedy works. Like, mm-hmm. it's still kind of finding its feet. But what's surprising is that the pilot is actually, I think, one of my favorite episodes yes, exactly. from the first season. Which has, I have to admit that for a long time, the pilot wasn't one of my favorites, but it's grown on me. And now when I watch it, I find myself laughing much more than I did in the past. Exactly. And actually, the pilot episode is one of the things that I use in my classes pretty regularly uh, when I teach my television class because uh, I have to, you know, teach my students how to create a pilot episode of a show, uh, which is different from creating an episode of an already existing show because the pilot has to do so much to introduce this new thing. So the pilot episode of the Golden Girls is always on my list of pilots that I show as an example because I think it does it so well in that traditional way. 
Right. I mean, even with Blanche, who arguably like isn't quite the voracious, you know, man lover that mm-hmm. she would become, I think that her relationship with Harry and her desire to, you know, be with a man, mm-hmm. as Rose puts it, is, I think, symptomatic of her later character development. Exactly. Like, it's even there. It's not as explicit or as outlandish as it would subsequently become mm-hmm. but it's already clear here in the pilot yeah but in that it's, regard. it's exactly that we it establishes the idea that whenever there is going to be a conflict for one of the main characters with blanche it's probably going to be a man right <laughs> and i mean this is not the first, i mean this isn't the last time she gets engaged like almost engaged to a man mm-hmm. like she also gets has that wealthy older guy which we'll get to that and how gross that is later on. But <laughs> what do you mean? she's old too so <laughs> i know but he's not anyway we don't need to get too far afield but that's what I find really interesting is just how how well each of these actresses, as the kids say, understood the assignment. Mm-hmm. Like they knew who these characters were. They embodied them from the very beginning. And of course, as you know, as is well known, like it wasn't this configuration wasn't the first yes. arrangement. According to some, it depends on who you ask. But according to Rue, anyway, mm-hmm. she was supposed to be the ditzy one and keeping with her aunt Fran from Mama's family and also Vivian from Maud, mm-hmm. whereas. Be, uh, Betty White was supposed to be the sort of man-eater mm-hmm. a la Sue Ann Nivens mm-hmm. from Mary Tyler Moore. So it's even more striking how brilliant. So this is one of those things that I find very interesting to watch shows backward or mm-hmm. to, to, to watch shows through the prism of the present and how that which appears so obvious to us. Like it does, it's so, it's commonsensical by this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you can't imagine these characters any other way. But how it was sheerly accident and like a, yes. a set of fortuitous circumstances that led to this, ex, you know, this exact right chemistry mm-hmm. working out just perfectly and how rare that happens in in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it, or, I mean, it happens a lot, but it doesn't happen as much as one would like, perhaps. But it just works so well. Exactly. Uh, but the the sort of standout from that or the difference from that uh, is with B. Arthur's character Dorothy <laughs> B. Arthur was the initial choice for that role in fact in the casting notes for that role Dorothy's described as a B. Arthur type <laughs> and she is very she hits that the notes exactly right I mean mm-hmm. we're going to return to this I'm sure many many times over the course of this podcast but no one can deliver like either a withering line or deliver a withering look mm-hmm. like the Arthur. Like I don't think there is anyone in Hollywood who, before or since, mm-hmm. none of the great screen giants, none of the other TV actors have that unique talent. Like she just had it. Like she had yes. the it factor that just made her perfectly cast for that kind exactly. of exactly and i would even say on stage seth rudetsky who, who talks a lot about stage work talked about uh uh b arthur's turn in maine mm. <laughs> and how she could hold the audience a live audience on stage she could hold their attention so much with just a look right. <laughs> and hold people for like 10 11 12 seconds at a time of complete silence just looking at her look at someone else on stage which is i mean fascinating when you think about the extent to which the Golden Girls in particular made so much hay out of making mocking her looks Mm -hmm. even though it's ironically her looks are striking not ugly obviously Mm -hmm. but striking and that's why she's so effective as a comedian exactly and so even though I mean we'll talk about that later on but I think that's one of the things that stands out right away Mm -hmm. is the extent to which Dorothy through B. Arthur's skill is that kind of authority figure in the house. Exactly. And that's really manifested in the physical comedy. Like that's the other thing mm-hmm. that I really love 
about this episode is how well the physical comedy works. Exactly. And one of the things that I remember being surprising to me as I watched the show as a little kid and as I watched the reruns over the years is seeing these actresses of a certain age <laughs> using their bodies mm-hmm. in the way that they did. Uh, like you're pointing out, for me in the pilot episode where the physical comedy is sort of at its best is when they're in Blanche's bedroom and Rose is trying to tell Blanche that she's got a bad feeling about Harry and doesn't think she should marry him and Dorothy's trying to get Rose to just stay out of it and not interfere in Blanche's happiness and the way that (laughs) B. Arthur and Betty White act out this physical struggle (laughs) while B. is trying to keep (laughs) uh, while Dorothy's trying to keep Rose quiet is just so funny (laughs) all the way through that conversation because it's done in such an over the top way but staged in such ways that Blanche always conveniently misses (laughs) the struggles that are going on like when when Dorothy has her arm around Rose's neck. It's like, do you promise? And then she shakes her, do you promise? <laughs> it is just, it is sublimely funny. I mean, it's also kind of like when you consider the sort of, you know, now we know fraught relationship between B. Arthur and Betty White and, mm-hmm. you know, I, not their feud. I refuse to buy into yeah. that. But it is true that I can imagine B. Arthur finding Betty White as white herself puts it a pain in the neck yes an appropriate turn of phrase considering what we're ta- <laughs> describing like that adds an extra layer of pleasure to the humor because mm-hmm. you see it sort of playing the the behind the scenes drama such as it was playing yes. out a little bit on the mm-hmm. screen yeah for me i don't want to read too much into that because we're talking about literally the first episode right so, so this is before whatever their working relationship turned out to be this is before right it would have had a chance to coalesce into that but what i love about the moment that you describe is with you know with be holding Betty and shaking her that way. All of that still for me at least remains within the realm of the plausible, mm-hmm. if not really silly. It's still plausible. But for me it comes to a head when finally near the end of the conversation when Rose finally yells out stop ah. and Dorothy just pushes her across the room into the closet and locks the door. It's so cartoonishly funny. Right, it's like so I mean, I assume it's, presumably at some point she lets her out. Oh, no. Coco starts to walk over. That's right. But even then, the thing that always got me and why I love this as a staged comedy is that the closet door is one of those louvered closet doors. Right. So she could just talk and everyone could hear what she had to say. But she doesn't do that. Hilarious is all there is to it. But of course, what works just as well as the physical comedy are the, the one-liners. Yes. Like, so there are so many in this show, this particular episode, but I'm going to draw attention to a couple of my favorites. So after Sophia meets Harry, and he's like, ah, oh, well, you must be Blanche's sister, to which she mm-hmm. promptly responds, you must be blind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as soon as he walks out of the room, she blurts out, the man is a scuzzball. <laughs> And then back to that physical comedy part, <laughs> Dorothy's response is this silent <laughs> exasperation of "I cannot believe my mother is saying." This. Which is very funny because, you know, according from B. Arthur's own recollection, at the original dialogue was "the man is a douchebag," mm-hmm. but they changed it to "scuzzball" for network, obviously. Yes. And I mean, I have to say that Sophia has some of the best one-liners. I mean, in the show generally, but in this pilot specifically, mm-hmm. like. <laughs> The way, so the moment she walks in, she's like, hi there, <laughs> home burned down, right? like that thick, you know, New York accent. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I need when, a $67 tip. <laughs> and then, of course, like the way when Blanche is like, well, hi there. You know, she's like, who are you? <laughs> yes. And, and she's like, she blurts out again. You look like a prostitute. Like, 
I mean, these are lines, of course, that could have been uttered at any point in the next, se- you know, seven seasons. Mm-hmm. But it's just the, the once again, Estelle Getty knew the assignment and mm-hmm. she just nailed it. And it's it's so key to how this episode works, yes. comedically speaking, mm-hmm. just because she knows how to deliver a line. And of course, it's explained diegetically that she had a stroke that destroyed the part of her brain that censors what she says, mm-hmm. which, you know, leaves Rose scandalized. Yes. Um, and one thing that I like, we didn't mention this when we talked about pilots, is that there's often a tendency to retool a show after a pilot. Mm-hmm. So certain things that get established in the pilot get jettisoned along the way. Uh, Golden Girls is no exception. That's not a rare thing. That's the most common thing that happens with pilots is as the show goes on the writers develop better ideas and so we get rid of some of the stuff that was established early on and so one of the things that they get rid of is that idea of the stroke being the reason Mm. why Sophia is the way she is and just let her be an outspoken old lady (laughs) I believe you mean mean old lady like the paper voice says yes (laughs) and so I think that you know it, although obviously the stroke part stays, but the destroy the part of her brain that censors mm, yeah. what she says part gets jettisoned. Mm-hmm. But even so, but it works even so. It really helps to explain why she blurts out these mm-hmm. inappropriate things to literally anyone who will listen. Yeah. I mean, don't we all aspire really to be the eighties? You know, however she old as she is, which is another thing that changes repeatedly. Don't we all aspire to be that person who could just blurt out whatever yeah, they want? Exactly. And that's why I like they got rid of the reason and just let her be no fucks given. Right. <laughs> She's just like, I'm old, so I say what's on my mind. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, though, I mean, Dorothy also has some great lines. You know, when Blanche is going out about dinner and Rose says something to the effect of, I can't eat anything that moves. And then <laughs> Dorothy says, like what, Rose? Horses? <laughs> Like, it's a line that doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense per se, but it's just so funny. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the way that she delivers it, but also just the the incongruity of what she's remarking about. Yes, <laughs> but that kind of sarcasm, she Dorothy, is it's established from the moment she enters the kitchen in that first scene, and she just walks in, and what I love so much is it's a master class in how to walk into a room. Right. She just walks in, and she just starts talking to whoever happens to be in the room. She's like, I taught a class today. And I'm going to tell you all the things that I didn't like about it. <laughs> right. And even though, you know, what, as you'll find out as you listen to these episodes that we're doing, we always comment on politics. There aren't as many political commentaries in this episode as maybe in a some of the more p- biting or punchy episodes. There is that moment when Dorothy's talking about, like, the kind of students mm-hmm. that she's teaching, where you see this kind of evocation of you, that, the skepticism about mm-hmm. 80s youth culture in particular. Yep. Like, the outlandish hairstylings in particular, the mm-hmm. piercings, like all the kind of things that you would expect of, high, you know, subversive high school. Are you talking about Tiffany, the bald girl with a nose ring? That is exactly who I'm talking yes. about. So, you know, those are the one of many, particularly in the first season where we get this kind of thinly veiled hostility toward, you know, high schoolers. It's not even thinly veiled. She told them all to leave. They were too ugly to look at. <laughs> and there's no veil. No, I meant on the show's part. Like, the show's host- like thinly veiled. We'll see this later, particularly with, like, David mm-hmm. and um, Lucy. Like, th- again and again, we see this show's kind of engagement with mm-hmm. the under crowd, the, the, um, the underage crowd, <laughs> like the people who are below 18. Yes. So what were some of your favorite one-liners from um, the show? So for me, uh, <laughs> what I love, because we've talked about the, the you look like the prostitute, uh, you talked about the horses thing. The one thing that I think we should get to <laughs> is the line that gives our podcast its name. <laughs> so after Sophia arrives, 
And then she leaves to go into the kitchen to go get something. Before she gets up to go in the kitchen, she asks, if is, is it okay for her to go in the kitchen? Or, as she says, is the fancy man in there referring to Coco? <laughs> but then, of course, when she comes out, just to let us know that she's not just a deeply homophobic old lady, <laughs> she comes out and the first thing she says is, he's an okay petunia. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect line. again once again Estelle Getty understood the assignment the way that she just comes out just comes right out and says it and just keeps on going yep. like, and I can't figure out what she's eating like is it a piece of bread yeah, or a cracker, a cracker or I don't something. know like it's just it's comedically if it's a cracker it's a comedically large, large cracker, cracker yes. <laughs> but and then she just takes the bite of the cracker insouciantly as if nothing matters mm-hmm. like I I I, I I don't, I don't know how to say it except that I love it. Yes. It's, I just cannot describe how well put together that particular moment is. Yes. And then, of course, she later says, the fancy man and I are going to the dog track. track. Exactly. And what I love about this, we're talking about a show from the mid-80s. And what I love about it is that that's kind of the show's way of saying that it's going to take a more liberal stance on issues of sexual identity and all that kind of stuff. It's a comedy of the 80s, so it's still going to joke about all that stuff. Right. <laughs> but it's ultimately going to take a stance in favor of gay people. That's what it's always going to do. <laughs> right. And I mean, we have to think about sometimes like what this show might have looked like without or if it had kept... Mm-hmm. Coco, like yeah. Let's yeah. think about that because one thing that happened is they did. They were supposed to be one of the very few shows of this time to have a gay character in the main cast. Right. It wouldn't have been the first show, obviously, but it still would have been one of just a handful. Right. At this point, if they had kept Coco, but they decided to get rid of him to keep and bring in Estelle Getty as Sophia as the fourth main character, which there's a lot of good that we're going to talk about with that choice. But they did get rid of their gay character. So let's talk a little bit about that. Right. And I mean, because I think that what w- that would have changed the show in ways that I'm not sure would have been great. Like, it would have been nice to see a gay character in prime time. But I do think that part of what makes the Golden Girls the show it is, is the really unapologetically female energy that yes. we see. Like, you know, there aren't even today a lot of comedy shows or drama shows that are exclusively female led. Mm-hmm. And it's just, even at the time this came out, like the the, the nearest that we could probably compare it to would be, say, um, Cagney and Lacey. Mm-hmm. That's a drama, mm-hmm. um, obviously, but that's also a female led show. I mean, maybe Laverne and Shirley, but as you point out, like there are a couple of other male characters that are yeah, part of the Quiggy main cast, are like the next tier of characters, right? That are in almost every episode, exactly. <laughs> so you know, there's not really a show like this on television at the time until Designing Women comes along. Mm-hmm. And even that has a male character, Andrew, Misha yep. Taylor, who is, ironically enough, yeah. makes a very brief appearance mm-hmm. as the cop who reports that Harry has been arrested for bigamy. Exactly. So, you know, that's... I I think that the Golden Girls would have lost out, even if it had managed to succeed with Coco. Mm-hmm. I think it still would have lost something that makes it really valuable. Yeah. And that, you know, part of why we all love it is that it's female-led. And that, that's a kind of safe space... That would not have been quite the same, even with a gay character. Exactly. And as much as, again, like you said, I would have loved to have seen a gay character in prime time. As it turns out, the show ends up being more groundbreaking because it became an all women show like that has stood up longer as being more historically significant for the show than having a gay character would have been. Because as you pointed out, very few shows today are basically woman-centered in this way. But lots of shows have gay characters now. 
you know, so it seems like that's one hurdle we've been able to jump over. But when it comes to representing women in this way, it's still a huge deal. And it's still really hard to sell networks and platforms on the idea of a show that's just women. Right. It's still really hard to sell that idea. Right. You got to have a guy. Like, you got to have someone for the guys to tune in for, because God forbid. Yeah. And I mean, also, just speaking bluntly, I'm not sure that if they had kept Coco, that he wouldn't have just become like another figure for the gays to be mad about. Mm-hmm. Like, they would have been, to be blunt, like, there would have been a lot of people like, well, this was another example of Hollywood's misunderstanding of the gay experience, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. As it is, they sidestep all of that because yeah. they just have the women characters and who are opened up for all kinds of other queer readings. Plus, there are great queer characters, Gene and Clayton mm-hmm. and Pat and Kathy, the image consultants. <laughs> yes. like, you know, so they're, they're bursting at the seams. But to be fair, they, Pat and Kathy don't believe in labels. They do, that's true. They do not believe in labels. And there's also, of course, the, the caterer and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. So we have lots of gay characters and queer characters and Phil that come, you know, that appear. So we'll get to that later on. So I thought maybe as, we, as we're sort of wrapping up here, we could we're going to do a little segment called Coco. We hardly knew ye, mm, yes. um, since we're on the subject of Coco. And every week, or not every week, but every so often, we're going to spotlight the guest characters who appear. Mm-hmm. Of course, Charles Le- Charles Levin only appears in this one episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Fast, you know, does a really good job, and I really do kind of feel sorry for mm-hmm. the poor man since this was supposed to be his big break. Yeah, but... Exactly, the show. It's you know one of the most beloved projects that he was ever involved in, although he was involved in Alice, which was a great long-running show. Right. And on Hill Street Blues, a nice dramatic show. But the Golden Girls went on to have a life still that is, remains popular today. I mean, that's why we're in doing this podcast. other shows did not. And he's even said, or he even said at some point how much he kind of, he know he appreciated the show that it became and knew that it, it couldn't have been what it was with him. Right. But it's like, but it kind of sucked that he got cut out. No, I can, I mean, it, that is kind of the tragedy of, the actor sort of going out and like mm-hmm. not not even being referenced like it's not just that he doesn't appear anymore which is it is what it is but he's never even referenced Reference, like ever exactly. again for the next 160 70 odd episodes no mention of coco is ever made he's yep. like he never existed yep, yep. <laughs> which i mean there is a sort of tragedy of that i mean yeah. there's the tragedy even in levin's biography because as many of us know he died a few years ago after having disappeared exactly so not only did his character disappear in real life the poor man disappeared right and apparently like was in he was like like he had an automobile failure and then was trying to get help and then ended up falling off a cliff i mean it sounds sort of macabre not not funny but it is kind of just like oh my gosh does this actually happens Mm -hmm. so it just seems like you know this is one of those cases where the what it might have been is a compelling and ultimately tragic you know question yeah so i think that's a good place to stop i think we've done a pretty good job diving into this pilot um i like i said it's one an episode that has continued to grow on me um unlike some of the other episodes in the first season so and i think that it's a really spectacular example and i could see why you teach it so much to your students Mm -hmm. yeah it's a a great nice tight example of how to do a great job of introducing a new show yep so i think that's all we have for you this week so for the okay petunias i'm tj and i'm aaron and we will talk to you next week Mm -hmm.